Again, good morning. It is, uh, it's always a joy and a privilege to come and open up the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, my name is John Robinson, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff. And this morning, I would love for us to, to begin our time um, talking about something that I think is very evident and very present in our um, just everyday lives uh, with the issue of fear. Um, I heard this morning from, from our liturgist just the, the boldness and the, uh, the courage and the power that God gives us, and yet fear exists. Uh, it exists with us as believers in our culture, in our lives, in our day-to-day. Um, now, the, the fear that I speak of is not the, the fear of the Lord, which is mentioned in Scripture, but more really the fear of things. People, situations, things going wrong, the fear of danger, fear of death, disease, abandonment, failure, judgment, and loss. Fear is powerful. Fear can have great power over our lives. We can let fear rule us, control us, and dictate our decisions or the lack thereof. I find myself fearing the opinions sometimes of others, of failure, the fear of man issues that, that are so prevalent in my life sometimes. Fear can be crippling. Fear is powerful. Fear can cause us to go great lengths to keep us from the things that we do fear. Uh, some will invest in preventatives. Um, some will not do certain things and some will not go certain places because of fear. Fear kept the, the, uh, the coach and uh, commentator John Madden uh, from traveling and flying via plane. If you knew anything about John Madden, he was a, he was a commentator of uh, football games, and uh, he would not fly to certain locations. He would take a bus. Since the early 80s, he would take a bus from game to game to commentate. Um, and what would take him hours by plane took him sometimes days by bus. Fear is powerful. It keeps us from doing things. But fear... Fear is a lie. It's a liar. Fear is the enemy in the mind of God's people. Fear happens when we begin to listen to ourselves instead of listening to God. This is also where disobedience occurs, in the shadow of fear. Fear causes the believer to reject the good promises of God, that he will never leave us or forsake us, and causes us to believe that that God will leave or forsake us causes us to forget that all good and perfect things come from above, that we are sealed by the blood of Christ. Fear, the fear that what we have will never be enough when Jesus has promised and said to us that he is enough, he is sufficient, that he is good, that he is all we need. Fear will keep us from believing that our utter dependence is on Christ and will cause us to to place that dependence on ourselves, our own work, our own hands. But Christ has promised us something greater. Fear cannot dictate the future. God has all sovereign control over the future. I believe 
Paul when he was uh, saying in Romans 8, he was trying to encourage the church in Rome by informing them that their conversion to Christ, that in that they received the Holy Spirit, and that spirit was not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption where they could boldly address God as Abba, Father. It is this new boldness that the Holy Spirit gives us that we will be looking at this morning. The enemy of fear is boldness. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we were not given fear, but we were given boldness. Jesus Christ, by his atoning death, resurrection, and heavenly intercession for believers, is the unique liberator from fear. And this is why for us Christians that the resurrection changes everything. Let me again remind us that he is risen and that all of life that we know today is lived in light of that truth. Whether you believe in Christ, whether you are distant from him, walking away from him, or walking with him, all of life must be viewed in light of his resurrection the power of it, the implications of it. The distinct otherness that Christians are called to is a direct result of the resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Regardless of where you stand, Christ has kept his word and he is alive. So let's pray and then get into our text this morning. Pray with me. Good and merciful God, liberator of our fears, giver of hope, strength, boldness, and your Holy Spirit, may our hearts, our attention, our focus be on you and your word this morning. May we see you clearly this morning and how you have come to change everything. May we see ourselves in light of who you are and who you are calling us and forming us to be. Be gracious to us this morning. In your good name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you will turn with me uh, to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we will spend a little bit of time setting up Acts chapter 4 by, by briefly overviewing Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2 and all of 3. I won't read it all. We are going to do an overview very quickly. Uh, where we find ourselves in, in Acts 4 is set up by Acts 3, um, but is informed by the end of Acts 2 where we hear the call of the first century church. Um, by the way, if you have that hard black um, covered um, Bible in front of you. It's on page 911. Um, what we see in the end of Acts chapter 2 is we see kind of this first, first church mandate. What was the first church doing? Um, the, they devoted themselves, many of you have heard this before, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They, they were gathering together constantly, meeting with one another, meeting and breaking bread in their homes with one another. This is what's happening, and immediately coming out of that, what we see here is Peter and John doing just that. 
Uh, we see Peter and John, uh, two of the apostles of Christ, who were breaking bread and they were participating in the prayers. They were actually on their way to worship at the temple. They are walking through Solomon's portico, which is a, a, a massive um, covering. Uh, it is a um, it is a it is the entire length of of the Temple Mount Eastern Wall. Uh, it was this colonnade with what they say 80 foot tall columns made by Solomon where people would come and they would gather and they would, they would have conversations and, and rabbis would teach their disciples and the people would gather there and, and have these conversations. This is actually where we see in, in Acts chapter 5, we see the first church really kind of gathering here at Solomon's portico. Houses significantly smaller than they are today would not have been enough to, to house these people together to, to teach in large numbers. And so what we see here in Acts chapter 3 is, is Peter and John walking through the portico, which they were very familiar with. Jesus taught here. We see that in, in John chapter 10, where Jesus was teaching and training people and, and, and presenting himself as the Messiah right here in this portico, right outside of the temple, on the temple mount. And so they were walking through on their way to worship. And in front of them is this man who's being carried, this man who was lame. He was not able to walk from birth. He's being carried by friends to be set in front of the beautiful gate right outside of the temple to beg for alms, for people to give him money. And his friends are carrying him. And as they're carrying him, you can imagine Peter and John are talking. This is a very familiar space for them. There's lots of people. There's noise. Um, there's, there's many people who would go and they would, they would beg there because it was a custom that they would receive from people money to, to continue to provide for themselves. This was something that people would normally even carry money there other than to give it away. And so they're, they're coming up in this area and they lock eyes with this man who's being carried. I can imagine him being carried. He's almost, he's almost at their eye height. And he sees them and he asks them, for alms. He asked them for, for money, and Peter and John didn't have any money. And Peter locks eyes with this man. He says, money, I said, gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I will give to you. So in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he grabs the man, stands him up, it says that he leaps up. Um, and this man, who, he, was a, he, was a, he was a static figure there in front of the beautiful gate. People see him every time they would go into worship. So you can imagine this familiar face. And so they continue on with him, and they go in and they worship. And as they come out from, from worshiping, from praying, everyone's seeing that this man who was begging at the gate is now walking, and he's walking with these two disciples, and he's jumping. They said he literally was leaping around. He's never experienced leaping before. Now he's leaping. He's jumping up and down, praising God for what he has done. And immediately, the crowds who saw this man constantly came up to them. And so they're in this portico. They're in this, this area where people are being taught and they're all running up to see what has happened here. What is going on? Peter 
doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is, this is a moment where, you know, Peter's, Peter's uh, personality, I think, kind of takes over a little bit here. And he jumps into the opportunity to tell everyone, hundreds if not thousands of people that were standing there, exactly what had happened. He doesn't give himself or John any credit, but he tells them, so that this man could walk because of Jesus Christ. He explains to them who Jesus is. He identifies who Jesus is. He identifies who Jesus is was to be in accordance with the scriptures, that he is the Messiah, the coming one. Um, he also contextualizes it for them. The ones that, that you murdered identifies their sin, and he calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus alone. And so this is happening, which sets us up for right here in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. If you will, read with me. Acts 4, verse 1 through 13. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of them came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means is this man to be healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Here we see and I would love for us to, to look at two things in particular this morning. Two verses out of this passage that we see really, I believe, what sets up the rest of Acts for us. So we see the first in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, what name did you do this? And also we want to look at verse 13. So let's look first at verse 7. Peter and John are arrested, and I, I can't imagine what they're beginning to think here at this moment. Um, this, is, this is something that's very familiar when, when high priests and temple guards come and they arrest someone that's gone bad, um, and they know that they are not Jesus, and so what would happen to them? This is a very familiar scene for them, reminding them of the garden when, when Jesus was arrested, 
you know, where, were they fearful for their lives, what it might meant for their, mean for their futures, what it might mean for families and this church that was just getting started, this, this new and exciting adventure that God was calling his people to. I wonder what's going through their heads as they, as, they, as they worked through this. Were they fearful of the situation? Were they fearful of what the guards, what the Pharisees and the elders might do? The people who arrested Peter and John uh, brought them before the Sadducees. We see here that the Sadducees were involved. Um, the interesting thing about the Sadducees is that, that they rejected all of the miracles. They rejected the, um, the resurrection and everything outside of the, the temporal, uh, physical uh, reality they rejected. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything outside of that. They were, they were um, they're basically all about the physical and then like you get what you get based off of how good or bad you are. This is a very interesting perspective. I think, honestly, if we were to, to look at culture today, it's a very familiar perspective as well. Um, it's not uncommon today. There's, they were very good, if you will, agnostics or deists. Uh, they were very good. They were very good postmoderns in a pre-modernity standpoint, I guess. <laughs> There's a group here of skeptics, self-identifying Christians, if you will, um, with these Jesus seminars even, that chop up and take away anything in the Bible that smells of miracles or divine interaction. This is a very familiar um, contemporary mindset. There are many today that, that want to accept one thing about God or one thing about morality and not consider the whole of what God has revealed in Scripture um, and what Scripture says about Jesus and about the realities of, of the spiritual realm. Um, you know, you, you, we study even some, some Bible scholars and historians who, who, who go to these archaeological digs and they dig stuff up and they're finding out things about them and they write up uh, all this very interesting facts and knowledge about the, the biblical time and yet even they reject any truth about God and who Jesus was. Um, it's merely for them study. It's, it's history. They, they remove themselves from the reality of who God is, and they just look at the situation and the context. When we were, um, uh, this past December, we went to, to Israel and, um, and we're, we're studying and learning and, and kind of exploring the Holy Land. We had a guide, um, and our guide was, was a Jewish man who was uh, raised in, um, in Israel, kind of, I mean, 40s and 50s, uh, during a very tumultuous time. Uh, someone who would lead tours. This was his, his, his occupation now, being retired from a government position. He was leading tours and telling us about the history, about the culture, about what was happening here during Jesus' time, and was very familiar with all of these things. And when it came down to us asking him what he believed, he would have made a really good Sadducee because he didn't really believe in, in anything divine. It was more of what, what good he did and what bad other people did, and could you balance it out enough? And that, that shook me to the core. I was like, you, you lead people on these tours, and you see these places 
and yet you don't believe what God has done here. You can be so immersed in the culture even of Christianity that we see the good and the bad and the morality and we are fearful of us accepting the fullness of who God is and the presence and the reality of Christ. It's not uncommon in our culture. But I also I find it very interesting and almost funny that while Peter and John were speaking to these people, that what they were saying was annoying the Sadducees and the religious leaders. Um, greatly annoyed, by the way. Um, not, not something I, I see very often, uh, the issue of annoyance in Scripture, but uh, they were annoyed by what was being said. And, and, um, and I'm not going to advocate for you to like, specifically annoy people. I don't believe that's gracious and kind. Uh, but I am going to encourage you to talk about Jesus, the realities of Scripture, and the, the hard things. The, for some who would reject the, the truthfulness of, of the divine, the spiritual realm, if you, if you will, um, I will say that, you know, talk about sin, talk about Jesus, talk about the resurrection, even if people don't agree or believe in those things. This is exactly what we see here happening in, in the first century church, we see people talking, and yet there were still some on the Temple Mount who were annoyed by these things. That only goes to tell us that there's nowhere you're going to go where someone's not going to be annoyed by this. Someone will be annoyed by the truth of Scripture because the truth of Scripture is offensive. It's a great offense to preach and talk about sin and our need for a savior, and the issues that sin affects us, and that everyone sins. And sin is not just distinct to a certain people, and there's not certain levels of sin that God looks at and goes, well, those are acceptable and those are not. All of sin is an offense to the holiness of God. So you can't I'm not, like I said, I'm not asking you to go around and to intentionally annoy people, but I am going to ask you to, to start talking about Jesus. Talk about sin. Talk about the resurrection and the things that are to come. This is going to take something from each of us to do this. Because what we see here that Peter and John did is they, they didn't set this up. This wasn't a specified time of their day where we said, they said, hey, we're going to go up to the Temple Mount, we're going to heal a guy, and then people are going to come around, and we're going to start sharing. Ready? Go. All right, go team, go. Like That wasn't what's happening. This was daily life. This was daily worship. This was regular, ordinary time. And Peter and John made themselves available to respond to what God provided opportunity that God provided for them to, to speak the truth to people who needed to hear it. And the simple fact of the matter is there are millions and millions and millions of people that need to hear the message of Christ. There are hundreds and thousands of people within a five-mile radius of here that need to hear the message of Christ, the reality of their sin, the fact that Jesus is the only way. And if we 
think that there's just going to be a special set-aside time for us to do this, then we're going to miss the opportunities that God has given us. Friends, there is, there's not a specified time. It is daily. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. As you walk in the ordinary times of life, make disciples. May our words be seasoned with the gospel. May our conversations be filled. People will be annoyed. Praise God for their annoyance. You could say that, well, this was Peter and John. I mean, like the Peter and John. You know, these guys were kind of important. They're kind of a big deal. Let's, let's go back and let's talk about, uh, real quick, um, Peter. Um, let's not forget Peter may have been bold. I, I think Peter was uh, maybe an A-type personality. He was a guy who was gregarious. He was outgoing. He was probably the guy who um, needed to be shushed in the small group more often because he would overwhelm the conversation. Like, these are, this is him. Peter was outgoing. He was the first one to pull the sword. You know, he's the first one to jump out of the boat. Peter's a pretty outgoing guy. But when it came to... Peter, intention and moments of speaking and confessing Christ, we have one example that tells us how Peter would respond. When Jesus was captured, again, I'm thinking back, Peter is now captured. Jesus was captured. Peter comes into uh, the area of the temple around where Jesus was being tried and a, and a servant girl asks him, are, are, are you one of the disciples? Are you one of Jesus' people? You sound like a Nazarene. Like you sound like you're from that area. You have a southern draw. Or actually from there would be a northern draw. Like aren't, you, aren't you with Jesus? And, and Peter three times rejects even knowing Jesus. This is the same Peter who is now himself a captive this is the same Peter, although he maybe had some, some outgoing, gregarious personality when it came to punishment and trials and, and identifying himself with Christ, has failed. And yet we see here Peter boldly proclaiming to people, even under trial, he was literally surrounded by this group of elders and leaders. And he calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus. This is boldness. This is the new boldness that is received by those who are in Christ. The power and the boldness that is given to those who confess Christ. The power and the boldness that is given by the Holy Spirit to us, the church. You may not be standing in front of 5,000 people. That may not be the call to boldness that God places on your life. For some of you, that would be terrifying. For others of you, you're like, yeah, yeah, five, 10,000, I could probably do it. Give me a good microphone and a decent sound system. Like, we can make this happen. But that may not be your call. 
You see, these apostles were put in a situation and they started talking about Jesus not because they were emboldened by themselves, but they were filled by the Holy Spirit and were able to confess. And we as believers receiving the Holy Spirit can and should confess, should challenge ourselves to, to embrace this boldness, this confidence that Christ gives us by his power. You are um, not called necessarily to be Peter and John and in those situations, but you are called to be like Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ, which is exactly why he has given us his Holy Spirit, to be conformed to his image. And for some of us, this boldness may cost us. It may cost you. It may cost you everything. It may cost you your job, your families, your friends. It may cost you your life. It's a radical boldness that is shown here in Acts that comes from the fact that Peter and John were not out looking for this opportunity, but because of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the reality of them seeing the risen Christ they had no choice. What is a job compared to the future glory that is given to us? What is family compared to the eternity that awaits us? Friends, we hold temporal things sometimes over and above eternal things. May we repent of our idolatry and the fact that we see things as more valuable than eternity. We see things more valuable than Christ. We are not willing to leverage the temporal for the eternal. May God give us new eyes to see. May he give us new hearts that break for the eternity that is, that is, is and will to come. That eternity for some around us is eternal damnation in hell. May we be the voice of Christ in their life to show them that there is hope, to show them that there is life. May we speak life to dead men. May by the power of the Holy Spirit we speak life Literally, like what is happening in Ezekiel where he speaks to the valley of dry bones and flesh comes on bone. May we see dead men come alive. This is the work of, and the power of God, not us. As Peter and John would attest, this cripple man was not, not healed because of what Peter and John did. This crippled man was healed because of what Jesus had done, beating sin and death, resurrecting from the dead, ascending into heaven, and reigning on high. This message is for each of us to hold, for each of us to embrace, and for each of us to speak with confidence and boldness, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of who Christ is 
and what he has done, which brings us to verse 13. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And this, if you, if you underline in your Bible, underline, highlight this, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Because even they, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the temple guards, those who sat around these apostles, recognized that Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. There's nothing beyond his reach, his power, his capacity, his omniscience. There's nothing beyond it. And blind men could see that these men had been with Jesus. Blind men could see it. They saw that they'd been with Jesus. They saw that these men were not educated. They, didn't, they weren't the elite. They weren't, they weren't the, 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 if you will, Harvard grad of their day. These were fishermen. They weren't eloquent. Peter quotes Psalm talking about Jesus being the cornerstone, I think that that reference alone was only because the Spirit put it in his mind. He put those pieces together because of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. They, were, they had a new boldness. This boldness went beyond what they were capable of. This boldness that, that the Holy Spirit gives us allows us to go beyond what we're capable of, beyond what we thought we could do, and that's a great thing because it means it's, it's God acting and moving in us. We, we only have certain capacity. Can we be honest? Like, we can only go so far. We're only capable of so much, and sometimes we rely on that over utter and full dependence on who God is. Praise God that they saw that these men were common and that they were yet still bold. That gives encouragement to me as a very common, very uneducated, normal person that God would use me, would use you to be bold in moments and situations where it is tough, it is hard, you don't know what you're going to say, and all you can do is God, say, God, give me the words to speak. I don't even know how to put this together for this person, but you've given me a moment, and I'm going to be bold because you have been bold with me to speak the truth of God here. Boldness is a biblical motif associated with those whose courage is born out of their trust in God, not trust in themselves and their abilities. It is a trait of the righteous who, as Proverbs 28.1 says, are as bold as a lion. The lion of Judah dwells amongst his people and in his people. 
we don't, there's a, there's a quote that Spurgeon gives about boldness that, um, you know, the word of God being the foundation of, of what we say and, and believe and, and informs and, and helps us to understand who God is. He said, God is he's, he's like a lion. He said, a lion doesn't need to be protected. It doesn't need to be uh, held back. A lion is bold. You just need to let the lion go. And he'll, he'll do his job. He'll protect himself. And in the same way, we, we really need to embrace the fact that, that the Lion of Judah dwells with us, God's people. He will give us the boldness. We don't need to defend or protect the Lion. Put the Lion in front of you and get behind it. It'll do its job. This boldness isn't something that Peter and John, again, mustered up on their own. It is a true understanding of who Jesus is and his power and the fact that this power is because of the resurrection of the dead. And I hope you can appreciate the honesty here. Again, what Luke writes, this is not a, this is not a statement that we won't necessarily put on our gravestones that, that Peter and John were uneducated and common men. Um... But the same 2,000-year-old truth is, um, is true. It is the power of Christ, not the confidence of men that will change lives. We cannot change lives. Only God can do that. This is evident because when Peter and John, again, um, talked about both in front of the people that ran up to them after this man was healed and, and the council that they stood in front of, it wasn't the name uh, of Peter and John. It wasn't easily explainable. It wasn't something that they could take any credit for. It was the power of God. And in this boldness to proclaim these truths to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers and classmates, Pray for this boldness. Ask for this boldness. You know, it takes boldness to ask God for boldness. And yet he gives us the boldness to, to enter into the throne room of grace, to plead with God for the souls of men, to ask him for good gifts, to ask him for the boldness to speak to the people in our lives that, that sometimes we are fearful of. What would they think of me? What would they say? What would they do if I was to speak with such boldness about the reality of the resurrection, the depths of sin, and the hope that is to come? What would they say? We give up that fear and replace it with the boldness that is the truth of God's word. And we allow God to deal with what their reaction is and whether or not they accept or believe or they don't. But 
to ask God for boldness is exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And when they were released, Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported to the chief priests, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who makes the heaven and earth and seas and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together had shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their boldness led them to pray for more boldness. And they continued to speak in this because this is the characteristic of God's people who are filled with the Holy Spirit is we have a boldness, a new boldness, a new measure of boldness that was not there to begin with to speak the truth and love to dead men. May we as God's people pray for this boldness, for the continued desire to speak the truth to people. May this, may this boldness that's given by the Holy Spirit be infectious and, what, and that we see God do incredible things. Do things that only God can do. Save only those who God can save. And that that would encourage us as a church to continue to pray for boldness. Let us share the reports of what God is doing to encourage the saints, to encourage one another, to, to again pray for one another, that we would see God do, again, amazing things in our city and in our time that only he can do through the power of his resurrection. This new boldness that we are given is available and is offered to us the giver of good gifts gives to us freely this boldness. So why wouldn't we ask for it? Don't let fear dictate these things. Don't let the, the voice inside of your head talk you out of it. But let us pray boldly for boldness to speak the truth of the gospel to people. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, you have died, you have resurrected, and you've given your people your presence, your promise, your Holy Spirit 
Lord, that we would in this time remind ourselves that it, it, it is not us. It's not us. It's not, it's not our abilities. God, it is you. It is your power. It is your presence. It is your sovereign capacity to change the lives and the futures of men. So Lord, by you and through you, may we be bold to see dead men come alive. Use us common, uneducated people. Use us. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.